0: Again, back to Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. Continuing on in this brief detour to talk about the spiritual enemy that we face and the tactics that our spiritual enemy uses. So, The place at which we began this detour is in Daniel 10.13 where there was this this spiritual battle between this angelic prince of the kingdom of Persia and who fought against Gabriel, God's angel, and, and Michael who was called as well, one of the chief princes, who was called to help and to assist and to defeat this this uh, wicked uh, angelic being, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, and so we read there. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. And then 1 John 5:13 summarizes what we will be looking at today and, God willing, next Lord's Day. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life that you may know it. Not that you may doubt it, not that you may question it, but that you may know that you have eternal life. The evil tactics that Satan generally uses against believers fall under these three general categories. First of all, temptations, to sin by outrightly disobeying Christ and his word. Secondly, temptations to neglect or ignore communion with Christ through his word and prayer. Now we considered both of those temptations last Lord's Day. And then the third, broad general category of temptations would be this. Temptations to doubt and to question a believer's salvation. We're going to be focusing our attention this Lord's Day and next Lord's Day, God willing, upon this third category of the way in which the enemy comes to sow seeds of doubt within our, our minds to tempt us to doubt the blessedness that we are the children of God who truly trust alone in Jesus Christ alone for our eternal salvation. Interestingly, not all believers struggle uh, to the same degree with this temptation. Perhaps, again, in the course of your life, you have seen certain times in which you struggled with that, but you don't struggle with it now, as you once did. Or maybe just the reverse. Maybe at one time you didn't struggle with that temptation to doubt, but now you seem to struggle more with it. Or perhaps you've never struggled with that particular temptation. Again, it's not the same with every believer. It may be slightly different in each of our lives as Christians. But there is perhaps not a greater tool of the enemy to discourage us and to rob us of that blessed peace, that blessed joy, that blessed comfort and assurance that comes From the Lord Jesus Christ, which he purchased for us. And to turn us away from looking at Christ and to focus rather upon these doubts. To focus upon ourselves, to focus merely upon how we have sinned or failed our weaknesses. Merely to turn our focus upon that to the exclusion of looking to Christ. Dear ones, that is indeed a recipe for discouragement, for hopelessness, and for despair. However, what we want, each of us, and I pray by God's Spirit we will, understand that there is indeed a confident hope in Christ that as a Christian you may have a certain assurance that you are safely protected and guarded within the hands of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The enemy comes to steal to kill and to destroy. But Jesus comes to give life, to give assurance of life that through faith in him, you are alive in Jesus Christ. Our main points this Lord's Day are these, the blessedness of assurance in Christ. And secondly, application. Next Lord's Day, we will consider examples of the temptations that Satan brings against assurance in biblical responses to those temptations. So today, the blessedness of assurance in Christ. A good place to begin is to define and to explain what this biblical assurance is. And I need to make a distinction as we begin talking about what this assurance is. First of all, we need to note that there is an assurance of faith that every Christian exercises by God's grace in our coming by faith alone to Jesus Christ alone as Savior and Lord. Every Christian exercises this first kind of assurance of faith. Every Christian does. It's in fact essential. This first type of assurance of faith is absolutely essential to and necessary to saving faith and let me explain what i mean when we come to christ we we realize we understand that we are sinners before god we understand and that we deserve god's condemnation for our sin And we also understand that we must turn from looking to ourselves or looking uh, in ourselves to find merit before God and look rather in faith to Jesus Christ alone who has promised us his righteousness, his forgiveness and everlasting life. In this first type of assurance of faith, we are assured in coming to Christ that he has promised to us if we receive him as our Savior and Lord, we will be saved. That's the promise. John 6, 47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath Everlasting life. Acts 10, 43. Peter, preaching to Cornelius and those gathered with him, says, To him, that is to Jesus, Give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. That is forgiveness of sins. Whoever believes in him shall receive forgiveness of sins. Acts 16.31 Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Why would we have trusted in Jesus and his promise to cleanse us and to save us if we believed he was lying to us? Or if we believed he was playing games with us, or if he was in some way unworthy of our trust at all, why would we believe in him? Why would we believe his promise to us? We wouldn't. That's why this aspect of faith is necessary is essential to saving faith, an assurance, a confidence that Jesus Christ will keep his word, that Jesus Christ will keep his promises made unto us. You see, that type of assurance or confidence in Christ, again, it's called a direct act of faith. And we're going to distinguish that from the next type of assurance. But this is called a direct act of faith. This is an objective faith. The faith is in an object, namely Jesus Christ and the promises that are made unto us. This type of assurance of faith is, again, resting in who Jesus is, and in his promise. If we, again, do not have that assurance, then we don't have the promise. We have to believe he's going to keep his word. He's not going to keep his word to those that say, I'm not sure whether Jesus is going to save me if I believe in him. Uh, I'm not. I'm. I, I really doubt that he's going to save me if I put my faith and trust in him. No, that's why this is necessary. This assurance is necessary in coming to Jesus Christ. And once this faith in Jesus Christ is exercised, and in His promises, that assurance, that assurance that we're talking about here this first assurance of faith can never be lost doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that it will always be as strong as as at one time or the next like that of peter satan asked permission to sift him like wheat and jesus says that he had prayed for him that his faith would not fail See, that assurance that we have in Christ certainly can be tested, but it cannot be eclipsed. It cannot be destroyed. That is an assurance, again, that, that is objective in nature. That is a, a direct act of faith. It can never be lost. First Peter 1 Peter 1.5 says, speaking of those who trust in Jesus, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time we are kept through faith and reason again that we do not lose our salvation one of the reasons is that the lord keeps and guards and upholds our faith in him that direct act of faith but let's talk about which is really the focus of of the Sermon today and next Lord's Day, let's talk about this second aspect of assurance. Assurance of faith. Uh, This second type of assurance is an assurance that we sense and which we feel in our souls after our conversion and justification. This assurance comforts us, gives us inward peace, that Christ is ours and we are his, that he is our life, that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we are being conformed to his image, that we have everlasting life. This is a blessed awareness within that we sense of belonging to our God and our God belonging unto us. This is, because it is something we sense, this is, again, and something we, we feel, this is something that may come and may go in our life. This is, whereas the first assurance was objective in nature, it was Placing in Christ this is subjective this is a subjective assurance uh, an assurance uh, within us as the subject that we sense that we feel this assurance is not necessary or essential to our saving faith in Christ some of the great heroes of the faith in scriptures and even subsequent throughout church histories, struggled with this aspect of assurance, this sense of assurance. For example, David, in Psalm 51, verses 11 through 12, after his great sin with Bathsheba and an accomplice to the murder of her husband, this is his prayer, cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Listen to the larger catechism, question 81, on this aspect or this type of assurance. The question reads, Are all true believers at all times assured of their present being in the state state of grace? and that they shall be saved? Answer, assurance of grace and salvation, not being of the essence of faith, true believers may wait long before they obtain it, and after the enjoyment thereof may have it weakened and intermitted through manifold distempers, sins, temptations, and desertions. Yet are they never left without such a presence and supported the Spirit of God as keeps them from sinking into utter despair. And so, there is, again, this distinction to be made when we talk about assurance. We are talking about, in the sermon today and the sermon next Lord's Day, we're focusing upon that sense of assurance. Assurance. That is a blessedness, but it's not absolutely essential to saving faith, that sensing that, feeling that. Because again, as we see throughout scripture, that sense uh, is subject to change. Whereas when we truly trust in Christ, we will always truly trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. For the remainder of this first main point, I want to ask and answer several questions about assurance. Having looked at what assurance is now, let's begin to ask some questions and seek some understanding. The first question is this. What difference does having such an assurance of grace make? in the Christian life. Why is it important that we even talk about it? Why should we desire it? Well, as already noted, this sense or this feeling of assurance is not of the essence of saving faith, but it is indeed a great comfort and encouragement to our faith. Here's an illustration that might help us understand I think, the great blessing of this assurance to us as Christians. What if you had sustained a head injury and had total amnesia and did not know with assurance, a sensible assurance, a feeling of assurance, that you were married? Objectively, You might be shown a marriage certificate. You might be shown photos of of the wedding. You might know, again, objectively that that's the case. But subjectively, inwardly, you may continue to wrestle with that because you don't have any recollection, any personal recollection of that. You don't remember being married. Although your lack of assurance as to sense and feeling uh, will not mean that you're not married, nevertheless, such doubts and concerns will greatly hinder your growth in your marriage and your enjoyment of your spouse. Perhaps even guilt will continuously plague and riddle your conscience if you are not inwardly assured that this is indeed your spouse that you are with. Dear ones, if assurance in marriage to your spouse here upon the earth and in a Christian marriage is important, as again I think it is, how much more significant is assurance of your spiritual union and your marital spiritual union to Jesus Christ? Which the earthly marriage is a picture of that reality, of your union with Jesus Christ. You see, this is a very important matter as it relates to our Christian life, this, this assurance Of faith, assurance of of grace, assurance of salvation. It is indeed a great blessing. Another question Does assurance bring stability or instability? Does assurance bring growth or decay? Does assurance bring love or doubt? Does assurance bring trust or distrust? Does assurance bring communion or distance from the Lord? Dear ones, this inward assurance is a blessed grace of God for which we as Christians should indeed seek, pray for, that God would grant us that blessed assurance. 1 John 5.13, which we read at the beginning of the sermon again. These things, that is the things that the Apostle John has written in the 1st epistle, 1st John, these things that he has written. He says, I've written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. I'm writing to you who already believe and have that direct act of faith, that objective faith, that objective assurance, and have come to Christ. I'm writing to you who believe on the name of the Son of God. That ye may know that ye have eternal life. That ye may be assured that you have eternal life. That you may be confident that you have eternal life. By way, again, of a sensible assurance that God gives by way of his grace. Dear ones, we should want to know that we know that we are the children of God another question is it presumptuous for a believer who trusts alone in Christ alone to have such a certain assurance of faith and salvation in Christ is that presumption or is that assurance Various unfaithful churches uh, teach that that kind of certain assurance is presumptuous and even dangerous for the Christian to have. For they claim that that type of assurance, a certain infallible assurance, they claim will lead a Christian to be careless, Lazy and unfruitful and unfaithful. Thinking and acting as though it doesn't matter how I live my life. I'm saved, so it doesn't matter. That's the way in which many will argue about this beautiful and wondrous grace of assurance, of grace and salvation that the Holy Spirit blesses his people with those and these unfaithful churches claim that fear on the other hand fear of losing one's salvation is a necessary motivation to loving God and walking uprightly well let me ask is that the case is that true in a parent child relationship, will such a fear in a child cause a child to love the parent more or to distrust the parent more, to joyfully obey or just obey outwardly to avoid being cast out of the family, to submit from the heart or merely to submit outwardly? I submit to you, to the contrary, assurance of God's love, mercy, forgiveness, and eternal life, and of his faithfulness to keep his word that he has made by way of covenant unto us, invoking his own holy name in that covenant, and sealed with Christ's own blood, that covenant sealed and ratified by Christ's blood, that, I submit to you, is the fertile soil in which a Christian sends down deep roots into the ground and sends up strong branches bearing fruit, much fruit. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 15 through 16, we read, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Speaking of Jesus, of course. But was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us come boldly because Jesus, who has died for me and who is interceding for me, is at the right hand of God. Let me come boldly, assuredly, not cocky, not disrespectful, but come boldly as a child of the living God, because my faith and my trust is in him alone for my eternal salvation. Hebrews chapter 10, likewise, verses 21 through 22. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. Notice, In full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Yes, that's what God wants us to have. That boldness in coming to him. He wants us to sense that boldness. He wants us to sense that that assurance within. Now that is not to say that those Christians that struggle with assurance of salvation cannot be growing Christians. I would not definitely want to say that at all. It is only to say that such struggles with assurance will be a hindrance, a discouragement, and a setback in our Christian life. It will constantly be, as we question, as we doubt, and go over and over that particular matter in our hearts, it will continue to send us back to the foundation rather than building upon the foundation. We're going to be continually going back to ABC when we should be going on to the rest of the alphabet and putting the rest of the alphabet into words and into sentences and learning and growing. But because Satan tempts us and suggests to us that we are not, in fact, Christians, we who trust alone in Christ alone, we're spending all our time at the foundation, at the foundational level not moving on in the Christian life as much as we could otherwise. <clears throat> Westminster Confession of Faith, <clears throat> Chapter 18, Section 1 states, <clears throat> Such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love Him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured, certainly assured, that they are in a state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. Another question. What is it that hinders that blessed assurance of salvation Not salvation itself, but the assurance, the peace, the comfort of salvation. What is it that hinders that? Well, the enemy will use some of the following that I'm going to mention. And we'll look at specific examples. This will be more generally the case, but we'll try to get more specific in the examples we use, God willing, next Lord's Day. But these are the kinds of things the enemy will use to accuse us. Uh, All for the purpose of driving us away from Christ, driving us from looking to Christ, and his finished work upon the cross, his intercession for us in heaven, his forgiveness, his righteousness, driving us away from Christ to focusing merely upon ourselves, upon others, upon our circumstances that we're facing. He wants us to be, in order to accomplish this, that is, to sow doubt and questions in our minds, his goal is, through these means that we're going to talk about right now, is to put a distance between us and christ because when there's a nearness to christ when there's communion with christ it's far less likely that those doubts and those questions though the temptation may come it's far less likely those doubts and those questions are going to find root in our lives so what is it that hinders first of all not trusting God's promises. When God says this or that, and we begin to, by way of what we see with our eyes, what we feel within, we begin to see that that doubt from the enemy, from within us. uh, Doubts arise. Just as just as the enemy did with Eve in the Garden of Eden, hath God actually said? It was again, not initially, God has not said that. Hath God said a doubt that was sowed in her mind by way of this temptation? Again, had Eve been looking to the promise that God made rather than listening to, to the enemy, and even to the desires that that temptation aroused within her, she would not have fallen in that tempting situation. This is how the enemy attacks our faith. Hath God said? How can you believe in God when this has happened or that has happened? How can you believe that he's going to actually keep his word? How do you know he's going to answer your prayer? So in all manner of, uh, again, these types of doubts, basically what the enemy wants us to do with regard to the promises of God, the enemy wants us to walk by feeling in sight not by faith. And when we are walking by feeling and by sight, again, we are a prime target uh, for those types of temptations. But that's going to hinder, that's going to hinder our comfort, that's going to hinder uh, our assurance when the enemy comes to us and we, again, uh, begin to doubt the promises of God, the love of God. Begin to doubt the justice of God. Begin, begin to doubt who God is. Begin to doubt that Jesus Christ is actually in heaven praying for us 24-7, that our faith will not fail, that he is ever faithful, that he cannot lie. He must keep his word. secondly, and more Again, these are broad general categories, but again, what hinders that blessed assurance of salvation that the enemy uses? Unrepentant sin, which grieves the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 59, 1 through 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Our unrepented sin, dear ones, uh, is, is not neutral uh, to the Lord. Uh, it grieves, we're told in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 30. It grieves the Holy Spirit. Our sin, our unrepented sin, grieves the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is grieved, uh, there is a distancing. And there is that, that uh, opportunity for the enemy to sow those doubts of, uh, and questions within our heart about the Lord. You see, the enemy will encourage us to flirt with sin. See how close we can come to the very act of sin without falling into the sin itself. These are all temptations, as we've, I think, noted in a previous sermon. The devil will also suggest that we should just just compromise what we know to be God's will. In so doing, however, when we compromise what we know to be God's will that's taught in Scripture, uh, we will offend our conscience. We will offend our conscience. We'll offend the Lord. And we will run and hide, just like Adam and Eve, when they sinned, ran and hid. We will run and hide from him rather than running to him, as Adam Adam and Eve should have done. Running to Christ. Running to the Lord. That's what when our conscience is offended. And it's, again, we compromise, we violate it. Um, that's, that's what happens so often. The enemy takes, takes that opportunity and begins to sow doubt and question in our minds. That's why the Apostle Paul, and I think this is so important, very short passage of scripture, but I think it tells us how basically to enjoy an assurance of grace and salvation throughout our life. He says in Acts 24, 16, and herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. A conscience void of offending God and offending men now none of us perfectly can do that we're going to offend God we're going to offend men but is that what you desire is that your prayer is that what you seek to endeavor by God's grace every day to have a conscience that does not offend God and does not offend your neighbor just consider this illustration as we're talking about rebellion unrepented sin how that grieves the Holy Spirit and how it affects again our communion and our our assurance of God's love If there are two children uh, within a family and one of the children uh, is stubbornly rebellious and the other child is lovingly obedient, even though the parents love both children the same and assure both children of that love, Which child is more likely to have that sense of assurance of the parent's love? In my mind, without a doubt, it will be the one child who is lovingly obedient, is going to sense and to have that feeling that mom and dad love me. Whereas the rebellious child, I think, is going to be plagued with those types of issues. The obedient child, because the parent's love, in word and deed is interpreted through a conscience that does not condemn the child because of rebellion, while the conscience of the rebellious child is accusing the child of sin against the parent's love and therefore is interpreting every act of loving discipline as hatred and cruelty. Dear one, sins that we commit likewise. This is another way in which the enemy seeks by way of sins we commit to hinder our assurance. Sins that we commit against one another An unwillingness to pursue reconciliation will leave us open to the attacks of the enemy against our conscience and assurance of faith, assurance of grace. Once again, back to Ephesians 4, verses 30 through 32. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Notice now, these are things that grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Another, just to move on, uh, got another question I want to ask before the application. And so, uh, but this is the last uh, uh, general category that I would submit for you to consider uh, in which the enemy will use uh, sins to to rob us of our assurance uh, in Christ. And this is more passive in nature, uh, but it is nevertheless something we need to be aware of. Since communion with Christ and his word and prayer as individuals and as families and as a church is a great means to enjoying our precious Jesus, then the temptation of the enemy to neglect and ignore that communion with Jesus Christ is the devil's way to bring about a distance between us and Christ so that we are exposed to the suggestions and to the attacks and the accusations of the enemy against us. Dear ones, when we are strangers to Christ, I submit to you that assurance very often vanishes. When we are near to Christ, that assurance dwells with us. There is a correspondence between our assurance and our communion. That's why the Lord Jesus says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, that is, he means by abiding, he who communes with me. He that abideth in me communes with me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If we do not abide, if we do not commune with Jesus Christ, union, obviously, with Christ is that which forever joins us to Christ. But if we want to enjoy the assurance of Christ, we must abide in him. We must seek by God's grace, not just to go through punching a clock, but we must desire must want to spend time with Jesus Christ must be near him, not distant from him. The enemy is not able to attack us in the same way as when we are distant from the Lord Jesus Christ by way of these temptations. And so the last question before the application is this. What is it that promotes a blessed assurance of faith? in our Christian life. We've looked at what hinders it. What is it that promotes a blessed assurance of faith, assurance of grace, assurance of salvation in our Christian life? Well, what I'm going to mention are summarized. if you want to look at this section in the Confession of Faith, chapter 18, section 2. But they are basically these. These are that which... Promote a blessed assurance of faith and grace in our Christian life. The promises of God, first of all. In other words, go to his promises when you are struggling. And every day, even when you're not struggling, that should just, again, be something we are growing and trusting in God's word. Trusting in who he is, his faithfulness. Unto himself, his faithfulness to us, growing in believing that, that he cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. What he has promised, he will do. So growing in that, just as Abraham grew in Romans 4.20, says he's, Staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Even to the point of being willing to sacrifice his own son, because he believed the promise that through Isaac the promise would would be fulfilled, that God would bless the world through the seed of Abraham. And he believed that to such an extent that. He was willing to sacrifice his own son, believing that God would then raise Isaac from the dead, which he did, the greater Isaac, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did give life to Isaac. Likewise, consider what Paul says in Second Timothy 1.12. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded, persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed, namely his soul, unto him against that day. Do you believe that God is willing and able to keep your soul now and for all eternity? That's what he's promised to do. Titus one 1 through 2. <clears throat> Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, notice now, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. The promise of God was made to God's people even before creation. And God is going to keep his word. It's impossible for him to lie. He will grant life to those who come to him through Jesus Christ. We will not have a steadfast and certain assurance of salvation where we waver in believing God will keep his word. The enemy will tempt us to doubt Whether our faith in Christ is true faith or whether our faith is a phony faith, that's where the enemy will seek uh, to direct his attack is at our faith, which we're going to look at more closely, those types of attacks that the enemy brings against us as examples, specific examples, God willing, next Lord's Day. But that's what the enemy will do is seek to sow doubt that our faith is not real, it's not genuine. We're simply pretending to be Christians. When we have, again, to the best of our knowledge, that we we are trusting in Christ. We're not trusting in our own self. We're not trusting in our own righteousness. We are seeking, though we fail, though we blow it, though we need to repent, we are trusting in Jesus alone for our eternal salvation. The second evidence of the work of God's grace and granting to us a, a blessed assurance of faith is this. The evidence of God's grace and fruit in our lives. What is he doing in our lives? Is there evidence? Now, none of us see perfect fruit. None of us see perhaps all of the fruit that we desire and that we're praying that God will show and manifest in our lives. We see when we're honest how much we fail Him. But the issue is that not that we all produce a hundredfold, but that some produce 30-fold, 60-fold, and some do produce a hundredfold fruit. So there are degrees of fruit, but is there fruit? Is there evidence of God's work of grace in your life? Not perfection of grace, but the work of God's grace. And I would summarize, again, what we are to, again, broad generally, in general categories, in these three areas. Do we love holiness? Not are we yet perfected in holiness, but do we love holiness? Do we want to be like Jesus? Or is that kind of the furthest thing from our mind? 1 John 2.3 says, And hereby, notice, we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Do you want to keep his commandments? Do you have a love to keep his commandments? Another evidence of God's grace by way of a general category is loving the truth, loving holiness, loving the truth. Second Thessalonians 2.10 says concerning the man of sin, Antichrist, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, that is those who follow Antichrist, because, notice, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. They didn't love the truth. They did not receive. They did not love that which comes from God that's found in his holy word. They did not love it. We open ourselves up to great temptation when we do not love the truth of Jesus Christ. That's an evidence. Do you love? Do you love God's word? Do you love that which is faithful doctrine? faithful worship sound church government do you love those things do you desire just to see them taught and preached from this pulpit and when they are how do you receive it do you just simply go in one ear and out the other or do you receive it in your heart because you love it and you want to hear more and then thirdly third evidence of God's grace and fruit is loving God and our neighbor. In 1 John four twelve, No man hath seen God at any time. Obviously, talking about the essence of God, the very nature of God. It's invisible. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, however, John says, If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. How do you see God through the love that you have for your brother and sister in Christ? God's invisible, but God manifests himself in the love that you show within your families. Brothers and sisters within a family and the way they love one another and care for one another. Not the way that they beat one another down and pick on one another but the way that they love one another that's loving God that's making God visible John says the way we love one another in the church of Jesus Christ is making God visible remember it's also keeping God's commandment to flee to his mercy, to seek his forgiveness, to repent, and to renew our love and and our obedience when we fall and have sinned. That's also keeping God's commandments. That's showing we love God's commandments when we repent, when we flee to the Lord for his mercy. Micah 7, 8 says... Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I'm going to arise. Though I fall, I'm going to arise by God's grace. And then the third evidence. And these, again, I think are summarized well in our Confession of Faith, chapter 18, section 2. But the third evidence is the inward testimony of God's Spirit, that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Romans 8, verses 15 through 16. Paul says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption Whereby we cry, "Abba, Father," the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There's something. It's not. It's not mystical in the sense of eerie or uh, that. This is supernatural. The Lord bears witness within our souls that we belong to Him. That we are his and he is ours. There is that witness that he bears. And that's a blessed testimony of the Holy Spirit within. In our conscience, before God, that we say and we know, I am the child of God. That's not of your doing. That's the Holy Spirit that works within you. Giving you that testimony and that witness. The application I leave with you is this. It's not the fear of losing our salvation that motivates us to be obedient uh, to the Lord God, but rather it's a heart of love and gratitude for the abundance of grace and mercy that we have received from the Lord that motivates us. The works of love... Dear ones, performed in obedience to God's commandments, understand, can add nothing to our righteousness, which is absolutely perfect already before God. It is Christ's righteousness. Alone now and for all eternity, it is Christ's righteousness alone and not our own, of which God fully and perfectly approves. If we must add our own righteousness to Christ's righteousness, or if we must add our righteousness to remove sin. By way of our own suffering or by way of our obedience, I submit to you, we will always be plagued with doubt and with uncertainty. For we will always wonder whether we have done enough. That's the problem. That's where Martin Luther came and turned him by God's grace. But the just shall live by faith and by faith alone. It is not our righteousness. It is Christ's righteousness. We can never do enough. Never. But when we turn from ourselves, when we turn from our sin, when we turn from our own works of obedience and rest confidently, assuredly, securely, in Jesus Christ and his righteousness, then God says, not, I am enough, but he, Jesus, Jesus is enough. And God assures us, I love you and I accept you in my beloved son now and for all eternity. That's, dear ones, the unfailing, and eternal promise that God brings with regard to his blessed assurance to his dear children. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Lord and our God, how blessed we are to have thy word and thy truth. Lord, uh, at thy right hand, Lord, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. How we praise thee, our God, that thou hast brought us even in this time of worship to thy right hand and bestowed upon us such blessedness, preciousness of the benefits that are ours in Jesus Christ. We please plead with thee our Lord that thou would send us to Christ always, not a way that we would not listen to the enemy and flee from Christ the uh, Lord uh, even doubts, questions that the enemy may raise up in our minds, stir up, Lord, within us, would not send us from Christ, but send us to the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is our righteousness. He is the answer to all of the accusations that the enemy brings against us. We thank thee, that we are accepted in the beloved. Lord, encourage thy people today who struggle in this area. Cause them, our Lord, to better understand what is going on and how they can benefit, how they can grow and enjoy this wonderful uh, grace of assurance of, of salvation through thy through thy tender mercies. In Jesus' name, amen.